1: Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fire.
2: Thanks, I don't need help. Just watch me love myself. That's all I want.
3: I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy.
0: We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating.
3: Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about how all is fair in love and basketball. That's right, everyone. It's our first rom-com
0: rewatch, spring break edition, and we are discussing the romantic classic Love in Basketball, starring Sanaa Lathan and Omar Epps.
3: We'll be focusing on teen rom-coms and rom drums during our extended bachelor hiatus this spring, and we are so excited to have co-hosts of the Betches Sup podcast, Millie Tamares and Amanda Duberman on the pod to discuss this one with us. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thank
2: you. I didn't know we were on the inaugural rewatch. That is so exciting. Oh, yeah.
3: oh hell yeah.
0: <laughs> this is this is big news. Before we get into Love and Basketball, just a reminder to everyone listening that our Love is Blind Season 4 recaps are happening over on our other show, Rich Text, at clareandemma.substack.com. Our finale podcast will be dropping on Friday, and then we will release A recap of the live reunion
2: next week. Oh, I can't wait! This season is crazy. (laughs) It's wild. It's wild. It is wild. I am all over (laughs) you guys' recaps.
1: I saw like I've been telling Millie. Yeah, I'm like, (laughs) because I stopped watching after season two. So sometimes I go in and I'm like, season uh, two was
3: a dud. It's back, baby. It's It's back. Yeah, it's been on the up ever since. Um, But we're we're here today to talk about some some film. This is a film podcast Enema. now. It's time <laughs> to get in our mental time machines and travel back to the year 2000, a time when all the clothes Gen Zers are wearing now were in style and it's <laughs> back again and we're just very confused. It's, it's love and basketball, you guys. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about this one. I hadn't watched it in years and re-watching Same. it was such a treat. So we want to start by asking you to... What's your relationship to romantic movies?
1: I love a good rom-com. I feel like there was this point in every feminist, especially millennial feminist journey, where, you know, in order to seem serious and to seem legitimate, you had to kind of reject or be like, that's corny, that's lame, all this stuff. (laughs) And now there's a, a hard lean back into that. And I'm enjoying that because... You know, I think that a lot of rom coms, you know, I mean, this is why, you know, when you guys asked what rom com I want, you know, of the list that you gave, there's not many rom coms that really accept somebody having it all, or like a woman having it all or pushing, you know, so. In that feminist way, I feel like that's, you know, my relationship with rom-coms. It usually involves, like, for the woman to have a happy ending, she has to move back to the small shitty town and <laughs> give up on her <laughs> dreams and fall in love with some guy who's probably a Republican. Um, <laughs> Sweet Home
3: Alabama. <laughs> Sweet Home yes. Alabama. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. And, like, Listen, how
2: is
1: guy in 10 days? Staten Island is questionable. Exactly. <laughs> I have thought about that.
3: <laughs> I have thought about exactly.
1: that. <laughs> so as I, I, you know, so I think that now that rom-coms, now that I've like accepted me for who I am, and I'm cringe, <laughs> but I am free, I, and also the combination of rom-coms, not all of them, but a lot of them have gotten better. And, um, you know, I love the To All the Boys. I love Summer I Turned Pretty. That's, mm-hmm. like, my favorite. Like, I think that's so well done. So Thank I Thank you, that, Jenny Han, for Jenny your Han. service exactly. to the modern rom-com. <laughs> so that's kind of my relationship with rom-coms is, like, but, you know, when I watched this movie again, I mean, we're going to get into it, but, like, I was, like, this is was so formative in how I viewed myself, my relationship, my goals, mm-hmm. all that stuff, so... Um, and again, just a good rom-com, like all the elements. So yeah, Yeah. that is my little
0: thing. I love that. I want to print like cringe, but free just on a poster, (laughs) start an Etsy shop. (laughs) I'm here for it.
2: Yeah. I feel like as Millie was talking, you know, I feel like as I was watching them, like the big ones for me were like, I feel like Clueless is kind of romantic. How to lose a guy in 10 days. She's all that. I, I, as Millie was talking, I realized I really viewed them more as like how, like who I wanted to be when I grew up. Like it just had to be it had it like how I viewed femininity. It was less always for me about like the romance of it because I was never drawn to those. Like I never like rewatched like The Notebook or like any of those romantic yeah. Yeah. ones. But it was like I mean, like every single character was like a a journalist or a writer in New York, and I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, so that's what I'll do. <laughs> yeah, and just connected to them that way.
3: That you say that, that's something that uh, that I I noticed when we were researching this, this podcast a little bit that Gina uh, Bythewood, yes. uh, Prince Bythewood talked about that like yeah. how important ambition in characters is in these movies. And that's, it's basically almost as much a movie about aspiration as it is about romance. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that, you know, I looked like, again, I've always watched this movie, but when I looked up Gina's like, First of all, this was her first movie she ever made. She also directed The Woman King, which is, like, honestly got a huge Oscar snub, but, like, incredible, incredible film. And also what I saw, is like, she wrote this. So that also, like, because I was... As I was watching this, I was like, yeah, this is such a feminist movie. Who directed this? Oh, like, a woman did. And then also, like, who wrote this? You can always tell. You
0: can always tell tell when it's a rom-com and you're like, oh, three men collaborated on this. Yes, (laughs) I do now (laughs) understand what's happening. I think that's like a perfect segue, Millie, to get into a little bit of the background of this movie. Love and Basketball came out in April 2000. So we are discussing this like very close to the date of its 23rd anniversary. It was written and directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood. It was her feature film directorial debut. And yeah, she went on to write movies like 2014's Beyond the Lights. She directed The Woman King and Spike Lee executive produced (coughs) Love and Basketball. And he's the one
3: who kind of got this movie off the ground, which is cool.
1: Yeah, but it was
3: such a passion project for Gina Prince Bythewood, and and super influenced by her own childhood and her own interests, and the idea of like a really ambitious female basketball player was very important to her. So, of course, (laughs) hopefully you know this, but Love and Basketball centers on the story of Monica Wright, played by Sanaa Lathan, and Quincy McCall, played by Omar Epps, their childhood friends who both love basketball and want to be stars in the NBA. She wants to be the first female NBA star. And ultimately they fall in love with each other and follows them from childhood through their post-college professional basketball careers. And, it's just the story of of love and basketball, and how those two things it's very descriptive. Interm- Absolutely. Absolutely. It don't really na- yeah, it, <laughs> it just, really nails it. Says it says it all. It's 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 romantic love. It's family love. It's it's the love of the game. So this this was like Prince Bythewood's, like. Like, personal project that she really mm-hmm. launched her career with. And her goal originally wasn't actually to make a basketball movie. It was to make a romance. She wanted to make a, quote, Black When Harry Met Sally. Um, She said, I love that movie, but I wasn't seeing myself in movies like that in love stories. Uh, this was uh, in an interview with the LA Times. And she said, in addition to that, there was a semi-autobiographical story in my head about a Black girl who wanted to be the first girl in the NBA. So those movies ended up kind of coming together and being and one And you can movie. see that
0: it is this perfect marriage of those two things. Like yeah. her care about the athleticism and the ambition is matched by her care of crafting a really beautiful and compelling love story. Um and this, this film was only like a modest box office success when it came out, although it got like good reviews. It was received really well at Sundance. And then it became as so often as movies that are targeted towards women do, a cult classic over the years, like a little bit of a slower burn. I also read Roger Ebert's original review from 2000. And I, <laughs> okay. loved, I loved, I actually loved this line wrote, it is a sports film seen mostly from the woman's point of view. It's honest and perceptive about love and sex with no phony drama and a certain quiet maturity. And here's the most amazing thing. It considers sports in terms of career, training, motivation, and strategy. The big game scenes involve behavior and attitude, not scoring. The movie sees basketball as something the characters do as a skill and a living, not as an excuse for audience-pleasing jump shots at the buzzer. And I love that recognition that, like, mm-hmm. these are the two big things and both of them are really treated yeah. with a lot of weight and importance. I love how well, I
2: don't know, like, a sports or a sports movie, so I didn't even <laughs> notice it wasn't, like, aggressively a sports movie. To me, I was like, wow, this is a lot of sports. <laughs> well, also, I <laughs> but mean... not I too think... much. I'll add it to the story, of course. Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, and I think that w- the scene that really exemplifies that is the scene where you're in her head and you're watching her play, and she's like, "Okay, okay, just focus, just focus," and you're seeing that, and it's like, yeah, like I think that in other films it would be like, "Who, yeah, who's scoring? Who's scoring?" and it's just like we're viewing from the audience perspective, but really, mm-hmm. like um, you're really getting through the path. Like the, it really just reminded me of sports psychology and like why that's such a big big thing and a big profession and a big sub thing because it's really all mental too. And like where their mental state, I think one of my favorite things to see was like how Quincy was dealing with his family issues and that how, how affected that his gameplay and his choices and how, what Monica was dealing with and how she worked really hard, like that was dealing with her choices. So... In that way, like, that Robert Ebert quote was so good because I think that it gives three dimensions into romance and Black people, which is also something that isn't very seen. But I think on another level, it's giving three dimensions to athletes because I... You know, we we as society view athletes as dumb jocks who don't get anything. They go to college. They don't have to deal. They don't have to finish their papers or anything like that. I mean, that's the stereotype. But then to see, like, the mental stress that a mm-hmm. college athlete has to go through, the training, all of that, it's like, yeah, like, it's yeah. fucking hard. And then when yeah. there's two of
2: you,
3: like, the complication that adds to a relationships was like, yeah, yeah very oh. felt. We have a lot on that. I I think that's so interesting that I, it's almost like this movie is an intervention on so many different genres by combining them that... Like, you were talking earlier, Millie, about the idea of a rom-com is like, the woman has to give something up, and it's corny, and it's not really feminist. Well, this is a feminist rom-com about an ambitious woman, and it's also a movie about athletes that doesn't see them as these kind of magical figures. It really gets in their head and understands them. Like, it's a movie by someone who really understands basketball, and so it does bring like a depth and a different perspective to all these different genres of movies at the same time, and I think that's what makes it so incredibly powerful. And some of the biggest moments, it, uh, yeah, they aren't the moments where they're hitting the, the the jump shot. It's the moment where like she misses the jump shot, and then she has to control her temper and stay in in, in a game. calm headspace so that she can get that recruitment letter from USC. And that's what you won't see in most most sports movies.
1: What I liked about this film is that it doesn't show the happy... You know, I think a lot of films would end with, like, she gets recruited, everything's great. Or he goes to the NBA, everything's perfect. Or they finally get together, everything's... Per- I, th- what I really like <laughs> about this is that there is no... Um, like, it is just showing every step is constant work, you know? yeah. Yeah, every
3: step is, every success is actually a new challenge. Let's talk about the cast for a second, because this cast is exactly what it needs to be. It's stacked. It's, I mean, we've got Sanaa Lathan, we've got Omar Epps, who was like the hot commodity of the time. Mm -hmm. We've got Gabrielle Union, we've got Tyra Banks, we've got Monica Calhoun, Regina Hall, Every it's almost like every part is played by someone who is a household name. Mm-hmm. And basically none of them were household names at that time, which is kind of what
0: makes it great. I loved seeing Sanaa Lathan, Regina Hall, and Monica Calhoun all
3: in this movie a year after The Best Man. I mean, they came were probably out. household names at that point. Once you're, once you're in the best man.
1: Well, I just think that they were big black. You know, I think it was at a time when black Hollywood or Black films were getting made and we had Black household names, but there wasn't much crossover. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, it, it just showed two things for me. It was like one, like all these, the big Black stars of that time all said yes to do this 30 year olds movie. <laughs> you know, she's like a 30 year old that wrote this, you know, these people, even though they're like the biggest stars in Black Holly, you know, Black Hollywood, it's like, They they say yes because not many people are reaching out or like giving them their flowers or this and that and they're incredible actors all of them you know they they all even the State Farm guy who's Quincy's dad he like (laughs) oh yeah he books that guy's in a lot of things but he's never going to be George Clooney level because you know his voice is just like yeah
0: oh you like the minute he starts speaking you're like oh that guy. Oh,
1: do you guys think that having
2: Spike Lee like being an advocate for it was a big part also in having a lot of the cast members like sign on?
0: Probably. I would imagine that this that, I that mean, helped. Yeah. Yeah. the movie
3: wasn't even going anywhere until mm-hmm. Spike Lee signed on because so many studios yeah. said no. And Spike Lee's production company really shepherded it through. Yeah, the I whole mean, process.
1: yeah, I think like studios wouldn't have accepted, but it's also like I think it's a combination of. Black stars can be super talented and like, but they're not getting booked as, I mean, you can, mm-hmm. Taraji P. Henson is a great example of like, she was billed third or fourth for Benjamin Button and like the the pay discrepancy, she had to pay for her own hotel room and all that stuff. You know, it wasn't until a black film, like Tyler Perry, who very problematic and very nuanced, but you know, he wasn't paying her the rate that an actress of her caliber who's white Would get. So I think it's a combination of, you know, both that Spike Lee was on, so it gave all these people credence, but also like these people aren't getting booked Mm -hmm. as much as a white actor would that has the same amount of credits.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. And I think that like a lot of people at the time were like, this is kind of this incredible renaissance for Black Hollywood. And the reality was, it was just like finally a handful. Of mid to to larger budget black films were like allowed to be made, um, and so so everyone yeah, wanted it's like it, it's, Everyone wanted it's, a part. Yeah, it's I, like the it's like the legislative year of the woman in nineteen And ninety yeah. two. You're like finally there are like four
3: women in Congress. You know, it's it yeah is like that kind of feeling. So Sanaa Lathan ended up as Monica. That was a part that like that was. In demand at that point, they they had Omar Epps, I think, attached as Quincy McCall. That was the name that that um, that Prince was kind of really him. wanted. Mm-hmm. It was anchored on him. He was a big name at the time, but Sanaa Lathan was a nephew baby. She was the daughter of Prince Vythwood's mentor, Stan Lathan. She was up and coming at the time, not not such a big name yet, and. Prince Bythewood was very worried that her image was not jockish enough for the role. She tells this story in an interview about how she met her for the first time for a reading, and she said, she shows me this Vibe magazine spread that she did, which was like a bikini spread. I was like, this is so not the character at all. I didn't know how she was going to get the part. So she had this image in her head of what a Monica type would look like, and Sonal Lathan didn't match it. But in the end, no one else that read for the part matched better. So she ended up going back to to Sanaa in the end. But she'd never played basketball before. Oh, my God. Can you imagine how much training you would have to do to be even passable in those scenes? I read that she was making her
0: train with um, an L.A. Sparks coach for, for like, for months and and before she even had the part, um, because there was also a woman who I think played in the WNBA who was in the running mm, for wow. this. But there were some, like, contract complications, and she ultimately decided, Prince Bythewood, that she wanted to prioritize the, like, skill of an actor who could really nail the love story over that she's like you can kind of fake you can fake a jump shot you can't really <laughs> fake chemistry. She also yeah, the found the ball out, goes out of frame and then yeah, it falls back. Exactly. Yes.
2: <laughs> I know it was just two thousand, but I believe we had some tricks.
0: Yeah, <laughs> some we had, we had some of uh, yeah. some little special effects. Also, she didn't know when she cast Sanaa that Sanaa and Omar were dating.
1: Oh. oh, nor did I. Wow. Yeah,
0: they had started dating before the filming, so you can imagine the chemistry that we see. Shit's real. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. That's <laughs> and that's what I'm, you know, what I really enjoyed about this film is just like, which I feel like you don't get from male directors or like, there's like the sexual tension, the buildup, the way that they look, like the dance. When they're at the dance and uh, they're looking yeah. across at each other, like those it's are the the moments. desire. It's yeah. desire, which I think that, you know, when we talk about how, you know, this is very binary thinking, but, like, how men and masculinity view sex and how women and femininity view sex, you know, of, like, sex isn't actually the act. It's all the things, you I know? had to, like, pause the game at the end
2: between them a couple times. Like, that was very, very <laughs> was sexually charged sexy. to me. Just. Just, <laughs>
1: just the one-on-one basketball game. Yeah. And, like, they're both playing so... You know, exactly. And it's not about... Like, th- you know, the sexiest thing was, like, when she... Well, you know, how she, like... The sex scenes, too, weren't, like, too vulgar or graphic, but you can see, like, it's just built by somebody who... It, yeah, exactly. It just nails that. And, like, I don't know, I just... Even, like, how they played in the room, too. It, it's just clear, like, oh, the, the chemistry... One-on-one one
0: has never been sexier. Never. No, never will be. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um, we also have the 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 whole cast. I mean, we have Alfre Woodward Woodard as Camille Wright, Monica's mother. Dennis Haysbert, as you mentioned, as Zeke McCall, Quincy's father. He is a player for the LA Clippers. We have Debbie Morgan as Nona McCall, Quincy's mother. Harry Lennox as Nathan Wright, Monica's father. And we have Gabrielle Union as Shawnee, Quincy's high school love interest. And she... Also has a fun, slightly <laughs> slut shaming background. She originally auditioned for Monica because she grew up playing basketball. She had been a basketball player for for her whole life, but Prince Bythewood told her she quote didn't look like a baller, hmm. and so she said, "I have another role. I think you'd be perfect for." And Union remembered. Uh, she gives me the sides, and I'm like, "Ho." Basically, oh. she was like, you don't look like an athlete, which I was my whole life, but you do give me ho vibes. I was very offended, but it was one of my bigger breaks. It was only the third movie I ever did, so I was very new and grateful.
0: I was like, yikes, yeah. <laughs> reading this. The line yeah,
2: where yikes. she has to say, like, I, I want to lick the sweat off his butt was tough for me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that
1: was definitely not a peak sexy moment But so you know, dialogue. But, but also, it was so, like... <laughs> women weren't It was really... very teen girl horny. Yeah, but like even uh, even then in 2000 like it's it wasn't cool for girls to be like now I want to mm. fuck it, you know? I mean, yeah. that no. kind of like... Totally. I feel like that yeah. is uh, Sex Lives of College Girls now. Like, yeah. now it's like leaning A character into like, would totally say that. Exactly. Someone's like, I want to lick yeah. this, you know? And oh it's my so God, sad, they're hardly like, like, ever you know? not saying stuff like that. That's <laughs> right? just exactly. the, whole exactly. that's the whole script. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think that there is a realness there, but I feel like there's a lot when we, again, you know... Another reason why, you know, I was like, we should do this movie because there's a lot to be said about the different roles of women, about yes. about marriage, about relationships. There is some a little problematic, like slut shaming moments. Um, as there oh, always, yeah. as there
3: always is, yeah. it's, it's such com- there, a complex, such a complex yeah, it's movie, complicated, and
0: we definitely want to dig into all of those gender roles. Um, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we will run through a summary and then get into our big themes. Okay. So you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next.
3: If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about
0: I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola.
3: Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast
0: for a while or even not that long knows that we love article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from article. That lovely chair out on my deck, article. Our big console, article. I'm My bed frame, article. This is an article household.
3: It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And My husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash LTSI. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot
0: com slash LTSI.
3: Rules and restrictions may apply. And we're back. And it's hard to believe we've been talking about this movie for so long. We still haven't talked about the blow-by-blow of... What actually happens in the movie, but let's let's Claire, let's run through.
0: <laughs> I feel like you you are masterful. <laughs> I'm gonna summary guide us, giver. Take us
3: through the four <laughs> quarters, us, Claire. Take
0: us. Tell the story,
3: Claire. I'm gonna take us through. Uh, feel free to jump in with uh, commentary. So the movie is divided into four quarters, much like a basketball game. Uh, coincidence, I think not. First quarter is set in 1981 when Monica and Q are 11. Monica moves to LA from Atlanta and next door to Quincy's family. And the kids originally meet when Monica tries to join the neighborhood pickup game that the boys are playing. They don't want a girl to play. And she's like, I can ball better than you. And they're like, all right. Iconic. She nearly beats Q. And in frustration, he shoves her across the court and gives her a nasty scrape on her cheek that ultimately becomes a very poignant scar. Monica has dreams of being the first woman in the NBA. Basketball is very important to her. Q also wants to end up in the NBA like his dad. And he starts to be intrigued by their shared ambition. So the second time they meet, or the third time, I guess, he asks her to be his girl, which he believes would entail playing ball together. And then if she gets upset, he has to buy her flowers. (laughs) And she counters with Twinkies seems reasonable, and they seal it with a kiss, which he says needs to be five seconds, and he counts them on his fingers. They then immediately get into a physical brawl because he insists that as the girl, she needs to ride on his bike instead of riding her own bike to school. She's
0: obviously not
3: down. Yeah, so they have about a a minute and a half long relationship.
1: Very middle school. So, yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I was impressed that at this age they were asking people out themselves. I was like, "Isn't your mom supposed to call and be I was like, like your friend?" Can your mom does ask? a
0: prank call <laughs> and then is like, "Okay, I'm going to pass you a note at lunch."
2: Yeah, for how maturely they <laughs> entered the relationship, I did find it jarring how how immaturely they just abandoned
3: it. Like, well, that no, was just the real one
1: part yeah. of it. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's Let's move to the second quarter. 1988, Monica and Quincy are in high school. Uh, they have become friends over time, but it's sort of a secret friendship because he's very popular and she's not. They're both the stars of their basketball teams, but that means different things for a boy and a girl. Mm. Uh, being the star male athlete, you're kind of at the top of the pecking order. He's a highly sought after recruit. There's going to be a press conference to announce where he's going to college. Monica is on the outskirts socially and she's finishing up her final season with no offers. She's running out of hope for her basketball future. And the problem she keeps running into is that she's seen as having an attitude problem. She's hot headed, she showboats, she yells at rafts, she loses it when she's frustrated, she flagrantly fouls. And it's not seen as forgivingly as it might be in a male star. She is seen as someone who should maybe control herself, be a little bit more ladylike. No one's going to want her for their team if she can't keep a lid on her temper. But in the championship game, they suffer a devastating loss in the final seconds. She misses a jump shot, and she manages to keep it together. Um, and gets an offer at the last minute from USC so she is going to play college ball after all after losing this championship game but before finding out about her offer she heads to the spring dance her sister who is much more girly than her gets her all dolled up in a white dress and gets her a date a college boy to take her to the dance and it seems like she's finally catching Q's eye he sees her across the dance floor and he's like damn, that's a sexy lady. He doesn't say that, but you know, you can kind of tell that's what he's (laughs) thinking. And after the dance, they both ditch their dates. They end up meeting up between their houses to talk. They can kind of see into each other's bedrooms. And there are a lot of late night meetings. Monica shows him her letter from USC. He opens it. He tells her that she's been recruited and that he's also going to USC. And they end up kissing and then consummating their their mutual interest by sleeping together for the first time. It's really just the stuff of high school dreams. I, I would have died if this happened with any of my high school crushes. I also love
0: that we get that like signature of a teen romance which is some sort of a makeover scene <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes and this is, but I love that it's her sister doing it me too and it's not like I, I don't know I think it yeah it wasn't like this dramatic thing of like you're ugly and now you're hot it's like you always have this potential
0: right the tone, right. the tone felt different than it often it's not does. It's just some guy
2: like, that's like, "Take your glasses off."
1: Right? Yeah. Ex- exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. They're not like, "Wow, you were an uggo and then you cut your hair and took your glasses off, and now you're finally hot." This is like, right. "Hey, you can dress <laughs> in different ways and express different pieces of yourself." And but we still get that fun little signature of like, "Damn, there is Monica in that dress. She looks
2: hot." Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like again, something that I love is her relationship with her sister. Of like, you're just as beautiful <sighs> as me. You know what I mean? I don't she, know. I, I love was like, her. So, also, Regina Hall yeah. so great. Yeah. Instead of other people being like, "You're ugly and you need a makeover," it's <laughs> like, if you want, when you want to, you can be, which is so great. I don't know. It's great. Yeah,
3: and her poor mom being like tonight, don't think about stupid basketball. Just enjoy <laughs> being beautiful. <And> Monica's <laughs> like, fine.
1: <laughs> the mom is a... We could do a whole podcast oh, on relationship yeah. her relationship. Oh, my god, We're going
3: to have a large segment on her mom and yeah. their relationship. There's That's a rich text right there. Third quarter is Monica and Quincy's freshman year at USC, where, of course, Q is a standout star. He's... Uh, the the hot new freshman on this big-time contender team. And meanwhile, Monica has gotten her slot, but it's not the same experience. She's being hazed by her teammates. She's being hassled by her new coach, who never seems satisfied. The current point guard, Sidra, is particularly cruel to her. She doesn't want to let her get close or support her because she wants to keep her own starting spot. But as a couple, they're thriving. Like, they're both just living the dream at this beautiful university, playing the game they love, and... Sometimes
0: doing strip. They have each other. While playing.
3: Yeah. There is a very historically important strip basketball scene in this <laughs> quarter that is... Died, it just, like, is in neon letters to me. I'm like, yes. historically important strip basketball scene. Um that Q, uh, importantly, claims he lets her win so that she gets all his clothes off first. One of the sexiest things you will ever see in a film. Yeah.
1: Well, my favorite one, you know, the double entendre of D, because D throughout the movie (laughs) means defense. Right. So she's like, where's the defense? Where's the D? And he's like, it's right here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Honestly, you can tell this was written by a woman, because sometimes... Sometimes you just ask, "Where's the?" Did ding? you
2: did you clock mm-hmm. that when you first watched it in the year two thousand, Millie?
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. No, this is something <laughs> that I got. You related to later. I related to much later where I'm like, I would love to ask, where's the D? (laughs) It's it's just (laughs) those shouters
0: that you love to see. You get different things from a film (laughs) as you age.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I just have to say, um, one of the things that I remember, though, that I really liked is that in dances and in party scenes, usually me and my little brother had this joke when we were growing up where like, Sorry, in white movies, I and now I know, now I know movie making magic. They're not playing any music, so you just see a, a room full of white people that are not <laughs> dancing on the same beat, and they're dancing terribly, and they're like moving. And me and my, me and my little brother used to do like white people's p- dance dancing, and and then I'm watching the dancing and the dances in uh-huh. this movie, and I'm like, holy shit, this it's not choreographed, like, in she's all that. But it's like, oh, everyone's dancing really well. Like mm-hmm. that was one thing that I'm like, they thought thoughtfully about this because that was such a thing. Any movie, like any movie that you can watch it from the eighties, they're yeah, dancing terribly eighties and nineties teen movies. <laughs> You're like, what beat is everyone on? This and that. Or it's so choreographed that ushers DJ. Oh my God. <laughs> that scene. <laughs>
2: DEI is important for a range of things, including making sure that the people at the dance party yeah. are dancing on beat.
3: White directors are just out there being like, either no one cares and is noticing the dances, or we're doing full music video. There's exactly. no in between.
1: <laughs> exactly. And this is what this is the nuance that <laughs> mm. women of color and film... <laughs> <laughs> Because even in that little party, when you when they bring, i like everyone's dancing. <laughs> oh, <yeah.
3: laughs> it's true. It's true. Then uh, two things happen at the same time to to shake up this idyllic situation that Monica and Q have. First, Sidra hurts her knee, and a starting spot suddenly opens up for Monica. At the same time, Quincy learns that his dad, whom he completely idolizes, has been cheating on his mom and is being sued for paternity. And the night that he finds out, Q and Monica are talking about it on the bleachers, and he asks her to stay out to comfort him. And she refuses, because if she breaks her coach's curfew that night, she won't be allowed to play. And this is, this is a really crucial moment. She needs to be able to play. She's finally going to have a starting spot. And Q is upset. Meanwhile, his play has started to suffer because his focus is gone. His head is all over the place. But Monica's work is finally paying off. She's doing so well that she ultimately wins the starting slot over Sidra when Sidra is healthy again. Q handles all this really well (laughs) by flirting with other women and being super pouty whenever people talk about, like, oh, your girl did so good, she won the starting spot. He's like, hmm
0: I don't jealous, care. Jealous,
3: jealous. And <laughs> then things really blow up when Monica accidentally walks in on cue going out for a date with a girl named Carrie, just real casual. He's going out with Monica Kowloon for food, and he's like, you can come if you want. Wild behavior. That's brutal. When he comes to talk to her about it later, he basically is like, look, you just can't give me the support I need right now, so I don't want to get back together. I think we should just be friends. He is also going to defy his dad's wishes. His dad wants him to finish his degree. And he's like, no, I'm gonna drop out after freshman year to go pro. And so that's it. They kind of don't talk for five years. I was watching this also with my husband, and he was like, no one dropped out to go pro after freshman year, that's that, that bad.
1: <laughs> Well, come on. <laughs> well, I thought the NBA has a rule where you have to play college, like you can't just go from high school to college, you have to wait one year. That's like a real rule in the NBA. Like, it's this whole scandal because it it prevents players from being able to make money for that first year or something. Oh, yeah. So there's like now like fake community colleges that have people work play <laughs> for a year in training. But yeah, that's a real thing, you know, is like people just do the cursory year and then drop out. Oh yeah, then- but I don't think
3: that it was super common in the 80s. I think it became super common and the became 90s. like the... Oh, yeah, like, when I was young watching watching college basketball, that was, like, the thing. Like, Kentucky would Mm -hmm. get a big recruiting class, and they'd be there for a year, and then they'd be gone. Mm -hmm. Um, But historically, that wasn't always the case. I'm not the expert on when that happened. Just uh, notes from watching with my husband, who is a sports fan.
1: Well, tell your husband he's wrong. (laughs) No, (laughs) I will. Get your husband in here. Let's ask.
3: He's going to want to text and have an argument, (laughs) so prepare yourself. Uh, Um, no, I'll block him, (laughs) (laughs) Never
1: mind. Never mind. He's right. He's right.
3: (laughs) Fourth quarter, 1993, Monica and Quincy are now post-college. They're five years out, and Monica is in Spain playing professionally after her four years at USC, and she's kind of a star. Like, she's winning championships. Her excellence is recognized. She runs into Sidra in the championship game, who's playing in Italy, and they get dinner afterwards, and Sidra is like, we're treated like celebrities here. Like this, this is rules. This is the dream. And at the same time, Monica isn't happy. She doesn't speak the language. She can't even understand the pep talks that the coach gives before the game. She's lonely. She's losing her love of the game. Q, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Q, meanwhile, has been bouncing around the NBA. He's now with the Lakers. And He is just slamming home a big old dunk when he comes down hard and tears his ACL. So now he's really fucked. He ends up in the hospital and Monica comes to visit and tells him, like, I'm not going back to Spain. I think I've lost my love of basketball. I'm just going to stay home and, and give up the sport then they're interrupted by his surprise fiance Kira played by Tyra Banks who is a glamorous flight attendant fun fact
0: apparently the the character was originally supposed to be named Kyra and Tyra was like I cannot play a character <laughs> whose name rhymes with my actual
3: name so you like have to change it
0: why but, i don't know <laughs> but then it's Kira
3: <laughs> i feel like that would make it easier she, I, maybe she didn't, like, she didn't yeah, want well, to have over identified. Tyrone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she did not know that he was engaged, and she's really thrown by this, and once again becomes sort of like consumed by her crush on him. He's going through rehab. Meanwhile, she's back at home working at her father's bank. And so they're now next door to each other a lot again. She's she's back at home. He is staying a lot with his mom, who's now divorced from his dad, to spend time together. And one day they run into each other, and he admits that he has also lost his passion for basketball now that he doesn't basically want to do better than his dad. He's like, oh, maybe that was the only reason that I liked basketball, and I literally don't care anymore because he sucks. So he's like, I think I'm going to go back to school, actually, and do something else. He has not told his fiance about this. They are getting married in like two weeks. <laughs> I will say this engagement is kind of underexplored.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: There's a Definitely. lot going
3: on with that whole relationship. Yeah. Monica's mother, meanwhile, suggests to Monica that Q could do better and that someone better would be her. And she's like, I always admired the one thing I actually did admire about you, my tomboy daughter, is that you fight for what you want. Don't give up now. So Monica, okay, (laughs) you might not be beautiful, but you are very determined. So Monica decides not to give up. She goes late one night to wake Q up and tells him that she's loved him since she was eleven years old, and she challenges him to a game of pickup for his heart. She's like, if you if you lose per your previous comments during our game of strip basketball, it must be because you wanted me to win. So I think we can conclude that deep down you just want me to win your heart and you want me to stop you from marrying Kira. And he agrees to this because I don't know. He he actually does deep down want her to stop him, but he can't admit it yet. So they play. He goes down early, he battles back and wins the game. Heartbroken. Monica starts to walk away, and Q stops her and says, the most important romantic declaration (laughs) in this movie, double or nothing? (laughs) (laughs) Chef's kiss. They kiss. Kira is nothing but a faint memory now. (laughs) I'm gonna cry all over again. I know. It's so romantic. And we end with a WNBA oh game. God. The WNBA has finally arrived just in time to save Monica from a life of misery as a banker. <laughs> I, oh, she, the Best
0: ending ever. She,
3: she takes the court wearing the name Monica uh, Wright McCall on her on her jersey. Q waves from the courtside seats with their baby daughter on <laughs> his lap. I just got
0: chills. Oh, I love that ending. It's perfect. I love
3: it. It's a great ending. It's such
0: a great ending.
3: What a movie. And to think that they're still only like 25 and they've really, they've gotten it all figured out. It's (laughs) incredible. I'm so jealous. Absolute goals. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On that note, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to really dig into some of these, these thematic elements that we've been referencing.
2: Can you keep...
0: I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily, I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus
3: q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash LTSI
0: and we are back and it's time to dive a little deeper now that we've really gotten a handle on the what of this movie we know what happens thank you Claire (laughs) that was beautiful
3: I did my best well
0: done a very good play by play (laughs) I think, hey, and you guys here for color commentary. Thank you so much. I just love that I learn new things about sports every time we cover a a movie about sports. Oh, my God.
2: My favorite part was when you said that she was on the outskirts socially. I'm going to start saying that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) People should say outskirts more. I'm now reminded that one of my favorite stealth parts of this movie was the actual sports commentators, like the Robin Roberts and like the... Dick vital like the minute he came on screen, I was like countdown to him saying diaper dandy, and then it just happened like <laughs> clockwork. PTP baby, beautiful, really makes you smell the sweat.
1: Yeah, there was like a fight where they had where he's like, why don't you go fuck Dick Fiteal or something? <laughs> Which I'm if like, all you damn. love is ball,
3: why don't you go bone Dick vital then? And they Honestly. had him in the movie.
1: I'm like, I wonder oh. how he thought
3: about this. Yeah, he goes to the premiere and he's like, "Exploits? What? that <laughs> line? I wasn't told about that." He's, huh. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure sh- I flattered. think he sh- would probably be flattered Definitely. to be considered a viable dating option for, <laughs> for snob- sure. the and <laughs> Uh, so I also love the implication that it's like, well, if you love basketball, why would you want to date a basketball player when you could date a basketball commentator <laughs> of on of television? <laughs> like, they both seem like pretty logical choices, actually.
1: Honestly, I... This is why when I'm on Tinder and I see, like, a video editor... <laughs> I swipe right because I'm like, yes, support me in my dreams.
0: Yeah, you're like useful skills. Please bring something to the table. <laughs> Photographer, power couple. <laughs> Photographer, you know that that is that would be useful.
2: Your spouse should relieve you from paying at least one freelancer for sure. Exactly. I, know, I
0: like really. That's what I feel like. Saying. I
2: fucked up. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
3: Miss the boat. <laughs> no, I used to get Greg yeah. to read my drafts, but he doesn't have to do that with podcasts. So mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. he's got an easier ride over time. Yeah, so, whenever
2: I get arrested for something absolutely unhinged, my lawyer <laughs> husband will, I'm sure, <laughs> compromise. Everyone has for me. their
1: skill set <laughs> yeah.
3: they can bring to a relationship.
1: I yes. feel like you'll get out of a parking ticket with my like like you'll show Definitely. up the At least you he won't could have do, frankly. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yes, luckily for him I don't drive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a jaywalking. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> so, one of the one of the big uh, like elements of this movie that has made it so like iconic over the years is that is the very thing that like kept it from getting made in a way, which is that it is a romantic drama about like young, ambitious Black people set in an affluent setting. Um, and that was something that was a real obstacle to getting it made. Like, Prince Bythwood has spoken a lot about that over the years. She talked to BuzzFeed's Kelly L. Carter in 2015 about the history of the movie, and she said that the note she kept getting was that it was too soft She says, that was the note. People didn't, that was why people didn't want to do it. I didn't understand. How is it soft? Because no one's getting chased by a knife or no one's been shot. How do you address that? Like, this was the story she wanted to tell. And studios kept saying, well, it's not the right kind of story. It needs to be more in line with what our predominantly white audiences are going to expect from a movie about Black teenagers. And so it was after, like, every studio had said no that she did a Sundance Institute workshop where an executive from Spike Lee's production company saw a reading and was like, oh, this is actually great, and we're gonna make this movie. But there was this just series of of obstacles laid in her way because people didn't want this kind of movie about these characters. And it's just a classic example of
0: how gatekeeping within the film industry can really so quickly narrow the type of stories that we see told, the type of stories that become part of our larger cultural narrative. And then it becomes like a whole cycle, right? You don't see those stories, so audiences don't expect those stories. So then studios have greater license to be like, well, maybe they don't want those stories.
1: Well, it also just affects... What people think, too. Right. I mean, you know, when you're talking about cultural implications, it, 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 it's, like a, it's like a 360 of like, well, it's too soft or like we can't see Black people in affluence or this and that. And then it, it reinforces. And then the things that people do see of Black people or women athletes or this and that it goes back and it's like, oh, well, you know, Black people, all they do is, st- or, you know, all, all these, like, terrible negative stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But it is because the people in charge hold those biases. And then when they are encountered with a work of art that doesn't confirm their worldview, they just view that as, well, this isn't reality. And this is not, you know, objectively wrong or false. Yeah, And um, this is, like, Ba- battles that we're still coming up with today, honestly. And you know, that's kind of the power of media and movies and cinema, you know, is that it really does change people's attitudes. so on some on some level, people view like, oh God, like, why does Holly like why should we care about diversity? Like there are people who there there's people who don't have running water or there's food insecurity. like, why? You know why is it such an important battle to fight? You know women representation, trans people of color, and it's because of the attitudes that people get. And also, like as you know, as some some of you you are saying in in watching rom coms, as when I watched it when I was a young girl, it really enforced that like wow. I can't have it all, you know, and like even putting that seed in me. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the stories that we absorb, especially during our youth, like I feel like teen narratives like hold this very particular importance. Those kind of inform the ways in which we see our futures. And that that does have a real impact on a large scale when you look at all of these like areas that might be considered, you know to be more serious, quote unquote, like these things all work in tandem.
3: Yeah. There's something about the rom-com or like the rom drum that it's almost seen as, I mean, because it's, it's not realistic, right? Like real life doesn't work like a romance, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place in, in, like you said, in terms of influencing how we really think about our real lives. And that's kind of the beauty of it is that it combines this escapism and this fantasy of what if I had the perfect love story? What if, what if I got to, you know, be a star in the NBA or the WNBA with these very real messages that affect how we think about ourselves and each other. And those are both really important components of a movie like a romance that, it brings those things together and so there is this idea sometimes in in artistic fields like publishing and like filmmaking that non-white artists are constantly put up against which is like well if you're going to make art it has to be based on your like really gritty racial trauma but that's not the only kind of story that that we all need it's not all going to be about like the most gritty, traumatic experience that that a person can have. There are so many ways that we can explore our potentials and 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 our lives, and we just see the way that like we almost missed out on this incredible cultural artifact because of of that limiting idea that these executives had.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you both were talking. Is that this isn't you know Millie was saying how important it was for her as a young Black woman, but it's also just, like, it's in the canon for Mm -hmm. all of us amid the the rom-coms we all remember. And it is crazy to think that it almost wasn't, because it just stands on its its own as well, even if, yeah, like, and that's why it almost didn't get made, because it was too similar to just, like, the coming-of-age formula.
1: Well, I also have to call or want to call out that, like, this, this takes place in Crenshaw, Baldwin Hills area. And that is like a historically Black affluent neighborhood, specifically in Los Angeles, which is also something that is not really reported. You know, that's Mm -hmm. where Issa Rae grew up. And Mm -hmm. it's a very real place for many, many people that, you know, when we're talking about Los Angeles and and things that are filmed in Hollywood and California, you don't really get to see that, um... Almost segregated area of, like, there was, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, actually, there was a, uh, BET had this show called Baldwin Hills, which was basically, like, Black Orange County, Black, like, the hills, and it was about Black rich people, like, Black rich teens that grew up in Baldwin Hills, Crenshaw, but, you know, again... It's not to ignore, I think, I think that sometimes people put the task, and I think that's the unfair advantage, and women, queer people, uh, people of color deal with this, of, like, having to be the all-representative of all, this minority group when you create something, and I think it's what you were saying, Claire, of, like, we need to see all kinds of realities to to give three dimensions to to this this group, you know. And and we need to see just like we need this female heroine. We need to see like a fly, you know, Hannah from Girls, you know. What I mean? it, it's important, you know. We don't need to see a perfect person, and and just like it's important to see films like Boys in the Hood or gritty Black movies. It is important to see, like, this is a real place. There are people really like that. Even if you, you know, again, even if you played a few seasons in the NBA, you're not super rich, you know? You're still going to live in this, like, moderate income house, you know? So that's also something that I appreciated was, like, letting people know this real area in America of, like... Black people who are doing what well. I love that you call that out yeah. because
0: that is something that Prince Bythewood talked about a lot, um, that that specificity was super important to her in making the movie. And the movie also really was like this love letter in a way to Los Angeles and to that like specific neighborhood. And yeah, it is an important detail of the movie that it is set in this more affluent neighborhood. You know, Monica's dad is a banker. Q's dad is a pro basketball player. He really wants his son to graduate from university, have more options than he did. And because it is in this very real world, predominantly black setting, it means that race is rarely mentioned in the movie explicitly because we are not like telling a story for white people about race And Omar Epps gave an interview in which he said Black people were not sitting around talking race in that regard. For Love and Basketball, that conversation didn't need to happen because it was a bunch of brown people talking to brown people. And I think that is is so important.
1: Well, and the nuances of, like, you got to get your hair done. You can't sit on your knees because it'll cause your knees to be Black. Like, Mm -hmm. those real things of, like—and, I mean, I think this is the bigger argument, too— of these more nuanced stories, even at this weekend as beef comes out, you know? I hear people who, you know, identify as Korean-American or Asian-American and they see a lot of, like, Easter eggs for themselves. But it is ultimately, as we're talking about in the podcast, there's a lot that anyone can relate to, but then there's also specific nuances that people can recognize, and, like, that's kind of the extra thing. But it, it doesn't have to be this... This whole, like, turn to camera and lecture. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: right, right. It's not like an after like school special. It. This is a love story between yeah. two specific people. And like,
2: yeah. the there was no need to, like, racially
0: of a movie is so important because that's how we get characters that actually feel real.
2: It would have been so strange for the story had they also just like unnecessarily racially traumatized one of the characters, like, in the middle of what was going on. It would have been bizarre and just taken you totally out of what, the st- what they meant the story to be. Well,
1: I you know like kind of shifting gears a little bit, but similarly, when we're talking about the lo- the losses or the conflict or things that happen which i guess is like was a big note from a hollywood exec was like it's too soft but it's like these all feel real like you know and even in i i was thinking even in like cage in korean dramas and stuff somebody's parent would die or something tragic tragic would happen in the middle of this rom-com but like the things that actually happen is are real the stakes are real and then also like it's really turning the wins into losses and the losses into wins, you know, too, which is very realistic of like, yeah, she gets recruited to, but she gets hazed. Or like, you know, the thing that's tragic is like discovering that his dad is this hu- flawed human being, or, you know, that people fight to, 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 to play abroad, and that it's not this, like, dream fantasy thing, you know, which is, like, that's the thing that gives it real legs and makes it relatable. Because sometimes in these rom-coms, like, this huge, dramatic, tragic thing happens that it's like, okay, like, I just don't feel like this is real life, you know, especially when we're talking of over the span of 15, 20 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah, why are there so many rom-coms with, yeah, that that's so true.
3: Yeah, yeah, everything is very, um, it feels so real in that way. And there is there are these constant anxieties and, and status anxieties and respectability anxieties and anxieties about gender roles and all these things that affect the characters throughout, but it's not these huge teachable moments, and that makes it so much more resonant. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about those gender roles because we keep being like, we're going to talk about them later. We got to get into it. a huge part of, of the movie. Yeah. At the end of it, I turned to my husband. I was like, this whole thing smacks of gender. Like, it is just <laughs> gender <laughs> yeah. archetypes and trying to subversions all throughout.
2: Well, I think especially as like, I'm sure you all thought this while you were watching it too. like. Just how timely it was just with, like, the NC, the Women's Championship just ending and there being, like, discussion around, uh, like, emotionality around that and, like, fairness and equity. Uh, That was definitely on my mind as I was watching it, too.
1: Yes, Amanda. I was thinking that. And also, something I was thinking of was, like, Brittany Griner and, like, Mm -hmm. how she was imprisoned in Russia. And it's like, yeah, the dream is to—I mean, not the dream, but, like, many, many athletes, I think— this really does a good job. Not only is it a great rom-com and all this, but the second thing is, like, talking very real about the differences women have to go through to be athletes and, like, versus their male counterparts and then also, like, the isolation and the thing, like, the, the sacrifices you have to make to follow your dreams and what it looks like when you're a woman and what it looks like when you're a man. Right,
0: because for Q, like, him pursuing this, this um, athletic ambition is just playing into the pre existing conception of what makes an impressive man, what makes someone masculine. And for Monica, we see her constantly battling and navigating the fact that prioritizing her athletic ambition flies in the face of our vision of traditional femininity. And it's something that she is in conflict with. Um, with her mother, played by Alfred Woodard, the whole, throughout the whole movie, like her mom, like openly worries that she isn't femme enough, that she might be a lesbian, um, and you can also feel Prince Bythewood's own experiences in this. Like growing up, Monica isn't seen as desirable or really sexual at all because she is a because she plays basketball, and Prince Bythewood told The Ringer a couple of years ago she's like growing up i never felt like anybody's ideal and so it means so much to her that monica can is ultimately seen as this object of desire in the movie um and yeah it just feels like the whole time you're like watching watching a real person like bump up against all the limitations that traditional gender roles like give to us and this like narrow box that women are expected to kind of fit themselves in and the way that yeah athleticism can can kind of subvert that
1: Yeah, I think that this movie does a really great job of like this idea of like femininity and yeah like when you see the girls that Quincy's talking to in high school and even the ones that he flirts with in college they're the more femme like pretty girls They're you know but like when you see like The person that he's connecting with on this emotional level is you know, Monica, it really reminds me of another movie that's one of my favorite, favorite, favorites is um, Girl Fight with Michelle Rodriguez. And I really recommend, it's very much in this genre of like, she's a boxer and um, her dad gets her, her dad gets her little brother boxing classes because she, he thinks he's gay and like not masculine (laughs) enough. And then Michelle Rodriguez ends up taking them and falls in love with a guy at her boxing gym. And, and then, yeah, like it's the same thing of like, She's seeing him flirt with and be with more feminine women. And it's like her, it's like that conflict of like doing your passion and being who you are naturally and also running up against like, this is society prioritizes femininity and like, what does it mean to be feminine? And it's just cool to see that now we're seeing college basketball players like, embracing their femininity of like angel reese which is the the top ncaa like basketball player like she always has lashes and nails (laughs) and long hair you know and same thing with Shakari and like all these great female athletes are like really balancing femininity and you know and their passion to play is cool but yeah that's That's a that's a thing that I was noticing. And another thing that I noticed is how they really when we're talking about gender roles, it's like Quincy's conflict with his father and his father's idea of masculinity, Mm -hmm. like countered with. Monica's Monica's conflict with her mother and her mother's idea of femininity and I, sometimes I'm like man Quincy's father and Monica's mother would really be a
0: good <laughs> You're like maybe just like divorce get back you know re yeah, yeah, that scramble. would
3: work that should be the reboot. <laughs> well I think that that also uh, Quincy's mother fits this traditionally feminine mold. The problem is, is that the bargain isn't upheld. Like the model of masculinity that Zeke claims to embody, he actually doesn't, right? Like he's, he's not being faithful and he's pretending to be this upstanding solid family man. And he, is behaving differently in private. And so they have. They both have these moms who embody this feminine ideal. Yeah, they're both like
0: playing the good wife, but in these very different ways. Like the two moms, even when they first meet, you're like, oh, these are also two very different sort of archetypes of the good wife, but they are both like trying to fit that role within their own family structures. And we see them both suffer at least a little bit as, as a result, kind of, like, under the weight of that, of what that means for their lives.
1: And, you know, something that I noticed is, like, I mean, she br- there's brings attention to it, so it's not like I have this critical <laughs> eye, but, like, Monica's mother is not at most of her games. Yeah. And she's not, like, you really only see her in the yeah. home. Uh, or in the driveway and stuff like that. So it's, like, it's, you know, it's this just diminishing of, it, in a way, it's, like, this diminishing of Monica's passion, but it's not even, like, meeting her where she's at either. It's like, um, you know, even when Monica comes home upset about her breakup with Quincy, uh, her mom's like, it's just a game. It's just a game. Like, get over it, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> like, that was also really... And I mean, at the end, Monica brings out, like, you know, you never valued the things that I have val- which is a conflict that me personally you know, as a woman doing comedy and pursuing, like, that is something that I have, a conversation I have with my family all the time, where I feel like I could work for months or years on a on a show, and I, you know, I'm, I and doing a show means, like, I'm making flyers and whatever, and I get director, and I write it, and this and that, and, like, they could not be bothered with, like, you know, one time I did a show, my mom, like, didn't even tell me she wasn't coming, like, I'll save, you know, and that kind of stuff, and then, but I'm like, I know that if I get married tomorrow or if I had a baby, they'd find a way to get to the baby shower or they'd find a way to make it to my wedding. Even if I decide tomorrow I'm going to marry whatever idiot <laughs> and what a, you know what I mean? Because that's what they value, yeah. but not like the things that are important to me. Like my things that I've been working, you know. yeah, It's a thing that I feel like a lot of people can identify with. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that they
3: they embody this conflict between like, the we-can-do-it-all girl power generation of feminism and that generation's mothers, which, you know, a lot of whom were stay-at-home moms and housewives. And you see the tension on both sides that is captured so well, which is that Monica feels like her mother doesn't value her because she's not conforming, which is true. (laughs) Um, But on the other side, her mother feels... Looked down on and rejected because Monica disdains what she does with her time. And we have this whole generation of women who came up thinking like, well, I'm supposed to be ambitious and be more like my dad, like have a career. I'm supposed to model myself on that. And my mom didn't do that. She just stays at home and cooks and like is a doormat. And I don't respect that. I don't respect her. And so they both feel really deeply disrespected by each other for what they spend their time on. And so they've just been, like, lashing out at each other for their whole lives. And Monica's mother hasn't been going to her games, and Monica is always, like, rolling her eyes at her mom's baking and her homemaking skills. There's just a disrespect between them because they both know that the other person sees a different kind of woman as the right kind of woman to be, and that rejection makes them unkind to each other and so when they finally have it out it was so like cathartic for me to like to see them both kind of understanding for the first time that the other person just wants to be recognized for what they've done you know you see this generation mm-hmm. of call-making women who are like I gave up everything for you and you're like spitting on it like you don't think it's good enough and so there, that's where, like, there is this tension that can arise between ambitious women and their mothers. And they, they finally are able to, like, actually confront it. And that was one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. It's just so...
1: <sighs> yeah, and, like, Monica's saying, like, your presence really did make a difference, and it did matter. Yeah. You know, even though, like, the mom's probably even thinking, like, well, she doesn't care if I show up or not, because she clearly disrespects me or doesn't respect, you know, and like Monica saying like, no, I do, like, I do want you there. That was something too. That was really like, yeah. Well, you right. Know?
0: You're like, oh, that's, it was just a beautiful representation of like, that is how a, a human connection can be forged, even between two people who don't want to spend their time in the same ways and don't have any of the sh- same interests or even sensibilities. Like a, just an acknowledgement that, I value you. I value your opinion. I value your presence. I want you to be around me. And it felt like Monica's mom, like that was the thing that she desperately desired from her daughter, just knowing that like her presence mattered to her. And I think you're exactly right, Millie. Yeah.
1: And as I I think, well, so why I think that's why Monica and Quincy's relationship was so beautiful is because there is a moment in the film where she was like, I don't even remember how many rebounds I did in that game. And he said four. He's (laughs) like, he's paying attention and he (gasps) connects with her. And it was like, yeah, like that is what, that is the basis of their relationship is like him even noticing. To me, that was like one of the sexiest parts of like, I'm watching, and I'm paying attention, and I'm engaged. And no, I, you care. Know? I care. I care about is, what
0: you care about. Like, that's yeah. hot.
3: <laughs> Especially because a lot of Quincy's, like, he's this cocky high school star. He doesn't seem to be paying attention to her, right? She's always hoping to catch his eye. She's watching his game. She's like, you had a really good game. He's like, yeah, tell me something I don't know. And so in that moment, for him to kind of let slip that he's actually been paying really close attention... Oh, my God, I was in a puddle on the floor at that line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, like, looking over, like, all the other, like, feminine girls and, like, paying attention to the game, you know, because all she could see is that he was talking, he had a group of girls around him and then he left early or something, but not, like, and then he's also giving her, like, hey, you need to, you know, moderate your attitude, you know, which was giving her tips. a really interesting conversation. Um, something that stood out to me was, was, which was exemplified in a way that I don't see really rarely or often in films is this idea, I mean, this is, like, I'm going to out myself as, like, I used to be obsessed with divorce (laughs) court and I used to watch a (laughs) lot of episodes and it was, like, because it's basically, like, relationship advice and relationship I love relationship counseling (laughs) shit. And the idea of, like, when you cheat on, when a husband cheats on his wife, he is doing damage to her, to the kids, to their kids. And, like, on one level, it's, like, it shouldn't matter. You know, I think people, there, there's, like, this idea of, like, well, Scott Disick sucks, but he's a good dad. Or, like, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. He's a bad husband, but a good dad. Like, that, that idea. But you really see that, like... And, you know, Zeke is in in quote unquote, like he's there, he's present, he's active in his son's life. He's giving advice. He wants the best for him. But in the way that he treats his wife, it is damaging to the sons. And I just don't feel like a lot of movies show that of like when you, yeah, it's like, and the metaphor they use in divorce court, which I really conceive in this film is like, Cheating on your wife is is taking a leg out of the table of stability of your children. And it's like you're giving them shaky territory because th- their mother is in worry and distress the whole time and not really actively paying attention. I don't know. It was just something that I was like...
3: Yeah, I think okay. <laughs> that depiction of Quincy confronting his dad's failure is so poignant because... He thinks he's modeling himself on this, like, ideal man who's, like, the perfect husband and father, the perfect player, and without that, like, everything kind of falls apart. Like, he suddenly sees, like, oh, all this—you see the time that his dad took away from his family. Like, he was disinvesting in his family by spending all these late nights and, quote-unquote, meetings with other women. (laughs) He was, yeah, creating that anxiety for for Q's mom, and— you see like the downstream effects that that has for Q that like at first he almost sort of unintentionally is modeling himself on his dad's hidden side. Like he becomes a womanizer too and doesn't even really realize that he has picked up on his dad's priorities in that way that he's becoming the the version of his dad that he doesn't even know about. And so then when he finds out the truth, he has to kind of confront the reality that his mom was living, the reality that his dad was living, and what that means for how he should be acting going forward. And, yeah, I don't think we often see, like, the way that they both have to accept the ways that gender roles have, have, like, thwarted them, or, like, held them back in some way. And then they end up doing a role reversal. Like, Quincy has always wanted to be just like his dad. He ends up being like his mom. He's the supportive pro-sports spouse with the baby in the stands. And Monica has always been afraid she'll end up like her mom. She ends up like her dad (laughs) (laughs) instead or more like Quincy's dad and breaks out of that. We but love not to without see both a man doing to domestic
0: labor and yeah. child care we but they love, come they it. both
3: have to come to respect all the different kinds of work that go into both of those things if done like with integrity
0: right it's and in that way it's not quite a role reversal right it's like an it's like a mutual equal partnership in which the varying needs of each partner are are taken into account and like the family structure is formed around what's best for the family as a whole. And that is sort of the, that's the feeling I got watching that final scene. One thing that I did want to bring up before we totally move on from gender roles is like, obviously there's so much that is wonderful and progressive about this movie, but a dynamic that I did pick up on, I mean, nothing's perfect, is that it's, you could sort of feel, I thought, the disdain that Prince Bythewood has or like the resentment towards women who do kind of fit more easily into that feminine ideal, and especially women who are more overtly sexual than domestic. I mean, I think in parts, like, 2000 was... That was, like, peak time
3: of women casually calling other women sluts, hoes, et cetera. I mean, it's like... The movie has, like, three paths for the modern woman. Wifey, hoe, and ambitious (laughs) ballplayer. Right.
1: Yeah, which is... (laughs) Which was rel- which was revolutionary. Yes. to add the third yeah, path. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like a modern rendition of this would have, which is you know, which we're seeing a lot more in female athletes and even female rappers, like Meg The Stallion and is like the ambitious, slutty, whatever. But then also, you know, there's many many pictures of her with her boyfriend and all that, you know. And I think that. A remake of this or uh, an updated version would have like what happens when all three collide, yeah, you know, or or right. when, when the when the woman that's ambitious also enjoys sex, or when the wife enjoys sex and she's not getting, you know, it's exactly. It's all and I
0: don't think that we would have the characters of like Shawnee and Carrie and Kira in the same way as these like women who are barely developed, who are obstacles, who are sort of these like you know, quote-unquote hoes throwing themselves at Quincy, who are these, like, placeholders. Um, I think, yeah, that would look different if the movie was made
3: again today. Yeah. I think Q actually comes off the most modern in that (laughs) car scene where Monica is calling Shawnee a hoe for sending him a note saying she'll leave him satisfied if he takes her to the spring dance. And Q's like, she's not a hoe. she's just honest. And I'm like, yeah, she has yeah. sex. <laughs> she's into it. Like, what's wrong with that? That's a that's a mindset that's much more 2023 than 2000, maybe.
1: And I think the bigger commentary can be about like, again, the being attracted to the femininity versus, you know, whatever. And also like a superficial. I think the whole thing was a little unnecessary, but it is something about. Being attracted to Q because he's popular and handsome versus being attracted to him because you have a shared connection or, like, providing emotional mutual support to each other or or caring about the things that, you know, like, that difference. I feel like there's a way to show that difference v- without necessarily slut-shaming the other right. women because, yeah, like, Shawnee doesn't care that his dad's cheating on his mom or this. And also like even the idea of I was thinking about Tyra Banks character and she's this doting like, oh, my God, my sweet baby. You know, like that mothering thing, but not really like connecting on a deep level. And it's like or 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 begging to challenge and to push him to 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 emotionally mature. Yeah. Which I feel like is another big element. of That's
3: completely true. I think that. What it seems, what I, what I feel in this is something that I think was a very common way. Again, it's like the 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 mom, the stay at home mom versus the ambitious girl thing, which is you're coming up in this time when there are women who are like bimbos and and sluts. I Hate to use that word, or like us the good ones who are brainy mm-hmm. and and like interesting and have substance and that was a way that i think a lot of young women were exploring their feminism at the time was to be like yeah. well i don't use my looks and my sexual capital to to get things i i have other ambitions and there was still this like <clears throat> excuse me this us them way of approaching that which is like well they're not as good as me because I'm the one who is real and has substance, and I think you see this in a lot of teen rom coms at the time too. Like, like uh, she's all that. Really, ultimately, is is about a girl like uh, like the outsider who doesn't get a lot of attention from boys, who isn't sexually experienced. Like, finally, I'm loved and accepted because I have real substance, and that's better. <laughs> and I think that that was just that that was just the stage that it was at at that point. There wasn't this more complex attempt to say, well you know that substance really matters and women can have those kinds of substance but that doesn't mean that a being a woman who wants sometimes to just have sex for fun or who is into just like the way a hot man looks that doesn't mean that she is a lesser creature either or, or, lesser, or that or that yeah. those are necessarily existing in two different people and right. I just, yeah, I just really recognize this almost as like the sports version of my adolescent nerd self being like, well, one day he's going to realize that all these hot girls who just want to make out are not as good for him as me.
0: Oh, it's deeply relatable. And and it is that that wish fulfillment in essence. If you are a young woman who was like not the popular hot one, there is a piece of you that's just like, who will recognize that I'm better in
3: all these other yeah. ways? <laughs> exactly. Please recognize that I'm better, finally. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it seems like, I mean, this was her first big movie. Like, she, Prince Bythewood was, like us, really working through a lot of those feelings in this movie, and it was very, very true to
1: to, to its time as well. Um, well, now she wrote, you know, Woman King, where now... Uh, to be a strong woman, it means you have to kill a bunch of people, which <laughs> and is that's feminism 11. now.
3: 20, <laughs> we 20, keep advancing. Yes,
0: <laughs>
2: exactly. These so uh, are those were the necessary adaptations.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do more Do, murder. Which, uh, yeah, if we could m- remake <laughs> that, she would probably have Sanal uh, murder. There, there are two things that I really thought about. Like, one was like Quincy's emotional maturity was also stopping them from being together you know, just as much as like her, but it, it was really about his emotional journey and him accepting that because when he was a kid, like you won't submit to me or like, why won't you abandon? Or even in college, like, why won't you abandon your aspirations to support me and all of that? And, and, um, it was cool to see him go on that journey. Cause like, Obviously, childhood Quincy would never think that he would be on the stands with a baby. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, it, it it, has a lot of, like, evolving of that. And then another thing, too, that reminds me a lot of just the reality of being a woman and a woman... Woman and woman of color. And as we talk about Nepo... Like, Nepo babies and all of that, and I think a lot about that, you know of like how easy some people have it and stuff and versus me but if you see the trajectory of quincy and monica's career you see that like monica has dealt with so much adversity and lack of support and and has been able to develop so much grit because of her reality as a woman trying to make it and, and quincy the opposite you know is just like um has had endless support and everything's like kind of, but then as soon as the first little obstacle happens for Quincy or things don't go as well or this and that, it's kind of like his passion is gone or his determinations, you know, which was interesting to me um as soon as like I, you know I'm thinking about his dad you know mm-hmm. like as soon as like one challenging thing happens in his life he's like well whatever you know I don't even like this I don't know that was just something that I think too which is a, a conversation that I have internally with like you know when people when I compare myself which is not good to like where <laughs> I see people not compare myself but when I see other people in comedy and in acting who like have had every hand up, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm really just fucking hustling. And then, but I see, like, as soon as they hit their first challenge, they, like, quit or give up or go do something else. And I'm just like, I'm in it to win it because I've had to fucking overcome 80 things to get to where I'm at, which is still not as, what I don't know. What I was thinking of that, like, kind of grit that you develop as a woman doing something professionally versus a man.
3: yeah. I think we really see that play out in their relationship, which is like it's how it's all woven together. It's like he is like the golden child, the golden son of the star. And he just doesn't have anything standing in his way. Like people celebrate him. He's always excelling on the court. He's always like in a flow state because nothing ever interrupts it. And Monica has to work so hard to keep herself in a a flow state because... She's constantly being distracted by, you know, people telling her that she's not good enough, that she needs to change, that, like, that her behavior is unacceptable. And so she has to work so hard to learn how to maintain her focus. And their relationship is, like, part of that, too. That, like, the big obstacle for them is that she refuses to be part of that effortless bubble around him in the end. And, like male star athletes often have the opportunity to pick whatever extremely supportive woman is going to dedicate herself to making his life easy. And it's almost unusual. Like, that's one of the, like, crazy parts of the movie is like, oh, what if this, like, breakout star athlete was just dating another breakout star athlete? Like, in the 80s, imagine. Instead of, like, someone who would be a supportive partner in the stands all the time. And the minute that that like, affects him, that her ambition conflicts with swaddling him and making sure that everything is as easy as possible to and conducive to success, he's like, well, fuck this. Like, this isn't what I need. I need everyone to just be busy supporting me and making things as easy for me as possible. And they can't come back together until he realizes that it's worth him learning to, to reciprocate that and not just to receive it. And that's his his character growth, his arc. And also is like, that there
0: are joys for his character that are outside this yeah. very particular kind of ambition that has been modeled for him by this father that he idolized, right? And I think that often we see with men, yeah, they're not battling to like be ambitious, but they might ignore other ways that those passions or ambitions and other directions that that passion and, and ambition might take them in order to be, like, the most masculine man, in order to be the kind of man that the world and that their fathers want to see. And that can also be extremely limiting. So, you know, gender roles hurt everyone, everyone.
1: Gender roles hurt everyone. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's, that's the true, the true happy ending is that gender roles are defeated and that clears the way for everyone's joy. Uh, I think that we should, uh, we should end with just a a little rating. Should we rate this, this movie out of 10, I'm going to say 10 dates with Spalding which is for the people who are really paying attention when they yeah. watch.
0: The detail-oriented <laughs> among us. The ones who know, know. So out of out of 10 dates with Spalding, Amanda, what would you rate this movie?
2: I mean, I don't want to uh, be a simp, but I feel like it's like a, a solid nine, right? I mean, just with the way that it ended, I feel like even like in 2023, if a rom-com, a rom drum ended that way, you'd be like, oh, wow, nice little... Nice little reversion there (laughs) for better and for worse. But I would say I would say like an eight and a half to nine. The only flaws being kind of of some of that slut shamey stuff that we talked about that felt like just felt beneath everything else in the movie. But um, other than that, yeah, I'm, I'm. that's the only flaw. And I only don't give it a 10 because there's got to be other things that don't make it flawless. <laughs> Is anyone giving it a 10?
3: You don't want to uh, come no. out the gate with no. the perfect score. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'm the first to go. <laughs> no, no, Milly, no. Millie, what do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I agree with Amanda. Eight and a half, nine. Like, I think the slut-shaming... Uh, you know, I think that in 2000 it was a 10 because it was exploring mm. new re- revolutionary things. But now... Um, and also like maybe if it was made now we'd have an exploration of queerness in mm-hmm. which you know that's also that's a whole other thing about female athletes too um you know is that like a lot of them do a lot of them are queer and and that is a big part of the game which is interesting and not necessarily all of them and you know whatever but uh and watching the NCAA uh finals with some queer friends I have they're like we love watching the games because we love uh picking out who we think is sleeping <laughs> with each other on the same team in a way that male basketball doesn't that's have <laughs> so every time there's like a congratulatory hug like there's a pair of girls that like just hang out a little bit too yeah, long like, we see it we see what you're doing to. we see it exactly honestly so, that's romantic in that way like Yeah, I mean, in another, in that way, like, that could be explored too, but eight and a half still, I mean, like, again, so cool that the happy ending is that a woman can have it all, but it's not fucking easy. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of vulnerability and a lot, and you gotta wait. 10 years. <laughs> and a you man who had the any... identical career
2: as you and understands
1: literally every nuance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you gotta wait twenty years and work your ass off, and then maybe you can have it all.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I I think I have to go nine. I when I rewatched this movie, I was like, this hits so much harder than I even remembered, and. Oh. There, the, I I agree. Like the the throughout the lesbian comment, we we didn't talk about much, but it's true. There is this anxiety that was still not being much dealt with at the time. Mm-hmm. I think now it's much more recognized that women's sports are a pretty queer space, and that's great actually. And instead, there is this like terror. Like, no, I'm not a lesbian just because. Don't worry, I play mom. Play basketball. Don't worry. God
1: forbid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That um,
0: line really
3: reminded <laughs> me also of. Um,
0: Bend It Like Beckham, which came out a few years after this yeah. movie and it was just that that moment in the early aughts where there was just this like in- intense anxiety panic. and panic around what being a female athlete meant and that that could yeah. signal queerness and like it felt like these movies were sort of like don't don't worry you can totally be into sports and not be gay, <laughs> and it's fine, guys. There Don't was this panic. whole
3: moment. I mean, it was like all of these pro women sports leagues were starting in the US. All these movies were coming out. Girlfight came out around the same time as these two movies Girl fight. that were exploring this question of like, wait, Women playing sports, it's a thing, but is it okay? How should they act? Like, who (laughs) Mm -hmm. are they? This, I mean, this was when we had that huge, like, global discourse over whether it was okay that Brandi Chastain showed her sports bra during the World Cup final. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, decorum, which, again, we are still talking about today with the NCAA Women's Championship. But um, it was a big, a big source of anxiety back then that was playing out in this movie. And I still just, I feel like it was so real at, and of its own, like, it manages to be both so escapist and so real that, for me, mm-hmm. it, it kind of creates a perfect, and almost perfect movie.
1: Yeah. I, I was gonna say, like, Bring It On has this whole theory of, like, it's actually really about the lesbian relationship between Kirsten Dunst and um, the gymnast oh. girl, Eliza. <laughs> Eliza Dushku. Oh, my oh, God, God, Eliza Dushku's just... character is coded... So queer, yeah. so hard, <laughs> and then it's like actually, last minute they added in her brother, but really it's about a lot. And like, God, think about how fucking cool it would have been <laughs> to see. Oh that. my God! Yes,
0: you're like just give these movies another like decade, and that's where they would have yeah. gone. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, I agree with all of you guys on the rating. I'm gonna go eight point five. It is just such. This movie is such a delightful rewatch. I hadn't seen it in so long. It really, it really holds up twenty plus years later, which is kind of an incredible feat. And the chemistry is great. Mm-hmm. The basketball is great.
3: The seduction give scenes.
0: Me, yeah, give me all the sexy one-on-one mm-hmm. games. Like I just, yes, this was so much fun. Millie, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. This was. Truly such a delay. It was so great to talk to you both.
2: I'm glad we have the rewatch list that we got to choose from. So now I just have
1: my weekend entertainment. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're like, I, All I have 20
0: more teen movies exactly. to yes. watch.
1: One last, sorry, one last thing about yes, this movie please. that's ahead of its yes. time is that... It was celebrating the short kings like Omar <laughs> Epps. <laughs> In a basketball movie. In a know, basketball it movie. They're like, listen, he's hot. He has abs. Who cares if he's five Okay, five. okay.
2: Now that we've talked about this a little bit more, I do feel like there are some serious like reality issues with the women's basketball player being straight and Omar Epps
3: being like <laughs> <laughs> But we will forgive them. We will forgive them for all the reasons we just spent <laughs> time oh talking. i like, I understand listen, that he's like still good, but like... The best yes, player in his year. I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's but he's the best. Uh, not listen. A basketball player is not going to give you crying on the hospital bed as his dad apologizes for being <laughs> exactly for not talking to him Look, in five we're, years. We're so. not here.
0: We're, we're watching this movie. Sure, the basketball <laughs> let's take it seriously. But like, well, when we really Disbelief need yeah. to do the work, is that is that emoting and that sex appeal and like. Mm -hmm. We have that. Where's Millie and Amanda. Where's the D? Yeah, where's the D? Where's the, in conclusion, (laughs) where's the D? Where's the D? (laughs) Millie and Amanda, can you both tell our listeners where they can find you and all of your incredible work?
2: Millie and I both both host the Betches Up podcast with our co-host Elise Morales on Mondays and Thursdays. It's called the Betches Up podcast, wherever you listen to pods. And uh, I'm on Instagram, at Amanda Duberman. No more Twitter in these parts. (laughs) So just Uh, find me on Instagram,
1: Millie. Uh, yes, I am. I host the, the Betcha Sub podcast with Amanda. And um, you can find me on Instagram at Millie underscore Tamaris. And sadly, I'm still addicted to Twitter yeah. because it's got the best succession memes. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Millie Tamaris. Uh, I do have a TikTok presence, although it's not
3: great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, shout out the TikTok. Ball. Yeah, shout out
1: that TikTok. Yeah. Millie underscore Tamara is <laughs> right. on TikTok. I'm on TikTok. Look, Listen, we're just some it.
0: millennials trying trying to make the TikTok girly we're thing work. We're yeah, yes. diversifying. Okay, yes. We're
1: learning. I'm just a girl asking a boy to follow me on TikTok. <laughs> Check out my use of
3: the green screen effect. It's very 2021 revolutionary. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh
3: and on that note that is it for this
0: episode of love to see it with emma and claire thanks to our wonderful guests millie tamarez and
3: amanda duperman love to see it is produced by us claire fallon and emma gray and stitcher this episode was edited by talon stradley our theme music is by tamar haviv and our artist by celine chang josephine martirana is our executive producer if you like our show please remember to
0: follow us wherever you get your pods rate us five stars leave a review and of course Tell all your friends about our show.
3: If you want to get in touch, you can email us at clarendemmapod at gmail.com.
0: You can also find us on Twitter and TikTok at love to See it pod and Instagram at clarendemmapod. And you can find our newsletter, Rich Text, on Substack at and Emma dot Substack dot com I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Claire Eve Allen. And I'm at Emma Lady Rose. We'll be back next week with Romcom Rewatch Spring Fling Edition 10 Things I Hate About You.